Welcome to Songs and Tales, a podcast where we delve too greedily and too deep into the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Clara. And I'm Aaron. And this week, we are the whispers of Sauron that will guide you on your journey. He's the whisperer, which uh, sounds like a Kenny Rogers song. But, the whisperer? Uh, yeah. It's like the really gambler. <laughs> Uh, but we yeah. are, this is episode 25, and we are done with the Silmarillion. We are officially done. Tolkien even tells us. Yes. <laughs> this is the end of the Silmarillion. We have moved on. Uh, mm-hmm. So the first age has ended. Yep. The second age has begun. That's The right. age of Aquarius is mm-hmm. upon us. Um, I mean, you know, kind of. There's so much water imagery in this That's true. section. <laughs> wasn't even thinking about that now. <laughs> Uh, so we are moving into the second age for this day and this day only, frankly, because we don't get a lot about the second age. Nope, we do not. <laughs> uh, Which is sad. It, I actually really like this. Section. I know this section I thought was really fascinating as well. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But but yeah, so Tolkien tells us in one of his letters that uh, where's this? I found this quote. It's very funny to me where he talks about why the. The, the second age is like, okay, here it is. He says, the next cycle deals, and then in parentheses, or would deal with the second age. But it is on Earth, a dark age, and not very much of its history is, parentheses again, or need be told. I'm like, Tolkien, give us more. It may not need to be told, but when has it stopped you before? Right, because like, does 90% of the Silmarillion need to be told? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it's also interesting that it's a dark age in his mind, but yeah, it it doesn't seem it. No, because we're told about how like the Numenorians, it's like a flowering of mm-hmm. knowledge and culture that like inevitably comes to naught. But oh, I don't, well. anyway, I'm getting ahead of us here. It's just, I thought that of, quote was very funny. Yeah, the mind of a great man. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I. I actually do really love this section. I remember reading it the first time and uh, liking this and the, the following chapter, which we're not going to talk about um, As much. too much, but yeah. um, which kind of gets us into the, the third age essentially. But, but yeah, the second age much neglected. Yep. It's like, it's like every uh, band sophomore album, you know, middle child to yeah, middle child. Like it's a little forgotten about, but uh, yeah. upon revisiting it's, uh, it's pretty great. <laughs> Just like a middle child. Yeah, or a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this coming, gonna... <laughs> this coming from an only child and a youngest child. <laughs> Sorry well, to all the middle children out there. <laughs> apology, yeah, mea culpa to all of our middle children. Uh, yeah, uh, beat our breasts. But... Um, yeah, so we read the Akala Beth. Beth, mm-hmm. what does that accent do? Beth, Beth, the little. I don't remember. Carrot yeah, it's a little carrot ear. over the. the... Uh, we're gonna say it's Akala Beth. And if mm-hmm. we're wrong, I will don my hair shirt and, uh, you know. I will continue to not care. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we read the Akalabeth, and then, yeah, there's this little bit at the very end mm-hmm. of the book uh, of the Rings of Power and the Third Age, which kind of is concurrent with what's going on in the Akalabeth, mm-hmm. but then also basically just reiterates what we spend a lot of time reading about in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah, so, the fellowship. 
It's basically the uh, thing that Gladrill says at the beginning of the Peter Jackson. 100% almost <laughs> like, word for word. Almost verbatim, yeah. <laughs> so it gets us from the second age to the third. And if the Calabeth is about men and Numenorians, the Rings of Power is about what's the elves were up to at that time. Yes. Essentially. So. Yeah, so as Aaron said, the Akalabeth is about the Numenorians, specifically the downfall of Numenor. Mm-hmm. You find out at the very end of the chapter that Akalabeth means the downfallen, uh, mm-hmm. which is very cool. It's basically about, you know, the beginning, of course, has to be a reiteration of everything that has happened, sort of, in the yeah. last chapters of the Silmarillion to get us to this point. Um, but then it's about the rise of the Numenorian culture, on the island of Numenor, and then how Sauron Mm -hmm. worked his evil whispers into the world and brought about the downfall of this great civilization. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, Aaron, do you want to... You kind of gave us a little bit about what happens in the Rings of Power, but if you want to give us a little (laughs) bit more of a glimpse. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially following the elves post what we read about last time. Um, So the elves that remain behind that mm-hmm. elect not to go over the sea uh, they're in a couple settlements that we will talk about again uh, so we get mention of rivendell with elrond uh, gladrill's mentioned of course um, and i think gilgalad is mentioned as well right so there's kind of three major mm-hmm. elvish settlements that are still ex- existent at this point um, and the rings of power is about the forging of the rings and sauron sort of tempting um, uh, well, his gifting that becomes a tempting uh, of these rings of power uh, to others, including the elves, but also the men as well. Um, so it kind of sets us up for what will happen in the fellowship. Um, and it gives us a little bit of background, too, about the forging of the rings. It's mm-hmm. kind of repetitive of what we get later, but maybe a little more detail in some respects about like how exactly the rings work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know how far into that we want to get at this point. It might be more worth talking about with the fellowship potentially but um that's just something to keep in mind is that he's kind of setting up these two alternative well not alternative but concurrent um histories here mm-hmm. one of men and one of elves and mm-hmm. and sauron is the sort of commonality between mm-hmm. them really at this point because the numenorians don't have a ton to do with the elves directly anyway like they're described as being like the elves in speech mm-hmm. and thought because they have such a deep connection with them but they're not really engaging with them all that much and in fact they're kind of going around and lifting up the wild men out of darkness <laughs> at various points yeah instead. yeah for like a little while they are friendly with the elves and they go mm-hmm. and kind of visit them on their isle of avalonia which uh, oh, we'll right. talk about <laughs> in a little bit um not abalone not abalone nope um and they like there's a kind of faction of them that will go mm. and kind of visit with Gilgalad from time to time. Um, but yeah, they're mostly at the you know time of this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their their kind of job in the world is really to like educate feral men. <laughs> yeah, essentially, right? Like these men who are kind of left behind in Middle Earth and living. Rather primitively is the description we yeah. essentially get. So yeah. they're kind of on the on the, on the boundaries of savagery. Yes. Um, I mean, there's this description where like they <laughs> the the Numenorians bring them corn and wine. 
Yeah. And instruct them in the sowing of seed and the grinding of grain and the hewing of wood and the shaping of stone and in the ordering of their life. It's really interesting because they do kind of occupy an almost uh, God position in relation to these other men, right? Like mm-hmm. giving them, giving quote unquote, giving them fire. Um, right. And keep them alive. And it's interesting because Tolkien describes the men in the letter I was talking about as being, uh, what do you say? They were living in Homeric primitivism. <laughs> Oh, it's an interesting description. Yeah, sure. Okay. Them. Yeah, I don't know what he doesn't elaborate on that. But. Yeah, does that mean like he thinks Homer was a quote primitive, or does he think that the world created by Homer is primitive? I think the latter. I think the latter. Yeah. Which is insane. I don't know that I read the Iliad or the Odyssey and think, "Wow, primitive." <laughs> no. So yeah, it's kind of baffling to me why that's the the, the uh, descriptive adjective. mode. Yeah, right. Because I yeah, but anyway, he sees them as primitive anyway. Yeah, um, which uh, so. a word we don't love. Um, we would probably say they're well, just... since they're not real people, I don't feel bad using it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough in this instance. Yeah, um, but. Yeah, I guess, like, you know, it, it helps, I think, for our purposes as a reader to see them as closer to the elves, too, right? That they have this knowledge that the other men lack, and right. it kind of sets them up for the, the fall, ultimately, that they will. Because they do have this sort of, like, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, paternal kind of mm-hmm. aspect to them. In yeah, and much, other men. and much like the elves, like, you know, they come mm-hmm. out of the West, they have wisdom they're tall Mm -hmm. and beautiful and have really long lives (laughs) yes um so they do don't get sick they don't get sick and like it seems from the text that they can kind of choose when they die up to a point yeah like they just sort of are like i'm 500 years old and i'm done i'm gonna (laughs) go to sleep and not wake up you know it's also sets up this interesting contrast too because Right, the Numenorians, their downfall comes about because mm-hmm. they are really unhappy with this lot. You know, they're like, yes. we, we die. How terrible. We don't want that. Um, but <laughs> they aren't looking at the other side of the coin, which is that they could be living like these right. savage men uh, in Middle-earth who have terrible lives and presumably shorter lifespans and are not tall and beautiful grass is always greener right they are constantly looking to the elves and never like looking Mm -hmm. to what they could have been which is you know uncultured Mm -hmm. yeah that's what's interesting about their closeness with the elves like we're told in mind and thought i think like they share the language, but there's also something along the lines of like in mind that they are quite close. Yeah, um, it's in my copy. It's on page two sixty one. I actually thought this was really interesting. Mm-hmm. I noted it because we talked last week, either offline or it didn't make it into the pod um, officially, about like what happens when Elros decides to become human or like to, Mm -hmm. you know, be human Mm -hmm. and Elrond decides to be an elf and like how, like what does that change? Like, does it just change their lifespan? Does something Mm -hmm. else kind of distinctive change about them? Right. Does like Elrond, do Elros's ears like shrink and become apparently like, you know, (laughs) not pointy. Um, 
And I actually think that Tolkien kind of tells us. Mm -hmm. So it says on page 261, he talks about, you know, the the Dunedain, the Numenorians, Mm -hmm. the kings among men. Um, Therefore, they grew wise and glorious and in all things more like to the firstborn than any other of the kindreds of men. And they were tall, taller than the tallest of the sons of Middle Earth. And the light of their eyes was like the bright stars. But their numbers increased only slowly in the land, for though daughters and sons were born to them fairer than their fathers, yet their children were few. Mm -hmm. So it does seem like the only thing that changes like physically about them is maybe their ears and their lifespan because they're still wise. They're still beautiful. We know from this insane, the nature of middle earth that elves do not have children very often. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So even like their reproductive cycle is more akin to elves than men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then something about this, something only about this change, right. Of being mortal versus immortal sparks this huge kind of mental divergence between the two and kind of how they view the world and how they approach, you know, really being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Think about if someone like you're immortal, what would you, how would that change the way that you you know, view the world around you, or if you were immortal and someone said, now you're going to die at some point, how that would change the way that you, you know, interact with the world. Um, But it's, it is interesting that like, that's the only change, Mm -hmm. right? And to just read it, it's like, okay, not a big change. They still live to be like 500 years old. (laughs) But then to like, put yourself into that mindset it does, you know, yeah, make a lot of sense why all of a sudden kind of their worldviews would be very different. Right. And um, there's actually a footnote in the letter I was reading today where he talks to about long life and its relation biologically. Like he actually uses mm-hmm. the term biologically. He says that uh, each kind, and he puts kind in quotes, has a natural span integral to its biological and spiritual nature. This cannot really be increased qualitatively or quanti- quantitatively. Um, so he's talking more about the Numenorians here, but there's this idea that like bio- biology and spirit are connected. And yeah, I'm wondering too if part of that decision entails both a spiritual and biological mm-hmm. change by necessity. So like the joke about the ears is maybe true though, like, you know, because he's mentioned their physical form kind of echoes the elves, but is not precisely elvish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't. It is interesting his view on like how biology has to reflect these other characteristics too. So in addition to sort of our understanding of what it would mean to be mortal, there's obviously also a biological component that he's thinking about. Like it isn't mm-hmm. just for him, purely conceptual, I guess. Well, and I think that's that's always kind of been like the. I think that's always something he's been working with. I mean, it's mm-hmm. why like you know. And we see this ever, but like beautiful people are good and yep. Yep. and ugly people are bad. Although, you know, you have Sauron who is very beautiful in this chapter, but like, you know, the Numenorians are tall and to yep. Tolkien, right? Tallness equals like nobility and beauty and wisdom. Like for him, whatever, for whatever reason, that mm-hmm. particular characteristic biologically like wraps up a lot of these more, you know, uh, like noble qualities mm-hmm. within it and is a signifier of something else for him. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and like the elves beauty, right? Like that equals that biologically equals something, you know, spiritually or like innate about them. Um, yeah. Sort of that old idea that like physical form reflects either punishment or mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like punishment of a divine for sins either committed by the person or their parents versus yeah. Sort of the, the nobility internal nobility that's yeah reflected in physical appearance that's this yeah very kind of traditional view of and the I relationship think, between body and morality or whatever and i think that's what makes sauron so mm-hmm. uh, you know so kind of terrifying is because he can change his form and make himself very beautiful and physically appealing so you don't know right you don't know if he's mm-hmm. good or bad because he can choose to look good, but be bad. <laughs> yeah, it's the. Uh, is that because he's from Valinor originally? Because he's a Maiar, probably. Yeah, is that why he's able to maintain that? And I think it's appearance. Even and I think he's... it's also part of his nature, right? It's like okay. that cunning, sneaky. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a very cunning thing to appear one way, but be another, mm-hmm. and and that's what makes him so dangerous. Right. In addition to him seemingly knowing mm-hmm. what people want, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, to wheedle wheedle them to to do it. Yeah, fair is foul. Foul is mm-hmm. fair. That's Sauron in a nutshell. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> At least in uh, this chapter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's basically Satan from Paradise Lost. <laughs> yeah, do you want to go into that a little bit more? Aaron was talking about sure. some some Milton. I know we've talked about sort of the way that the Silmarillion kind of is the Old Testament of Tolkien's universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting about the Akalbeth is it, I mean, it's specifically marked as a downfall, but it does read like the fall his version of the fall essentially mm-hmm. um, from grace or from sort of paradise. Cause we're told that Numenor where the Numenorians are is essentially as close to paradise as you can get on earth without actually being in Valinor essentially. Right. And mm-hmm. so they're banned from going further West out of sight of their islands by, by the Valar uh, because they the Valar believe that they correctly, it turns out that they would be too tempted to gain immortality by going there. Mm-hmm. Um, so right away, we kind of have this setup of like the fruit of the forbidden tree. <laughs> we have this ban. We're told that they don't quite understand it. They don't understand why it's necessary, the Numenorians, but they mm-hmm. accept it, at least initially, uh, until the 13th king of the Numenor brings Sauron back. So we have kind of an echo of Morgoth's in chains. We have a similar mm-hmm. moment here. He's brought back. Uh, he is basically able to make himself a trusted advisor to the same king. Um, so he, and then he gradually kind of turns him to this task of inv- invading Valinor, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is very much like Satan and Paradise Lost, right? Better to be a king in hell than a, a you know, a servant in heaven. We basically encourage him to overthrow God, mm-hmm. uh, in this case, the gods. Um, and that's where the punishment ultimately comes from because the Valor <laughs> essentially freak out when they see the fleet coming and they get permission to uh, drown the fleet and along with it, Numenor. So it is very much this fall from grace uh, because also as part of that, the world literally 
changes in kind of mm-hmm. an insane way when you read it. Uh, like Val, like the Valnor essentially disappears from yep. the Earth. The Earth becomes round instead of flat. Um, so we're told that if you're looking for Valinor, you ain't going to find it because you're That's just right. going to go in a big circle unless you're an elf who's tired of the circular nature of the Earth, in which case you can somehow... There's a bridge for you somewhere. Yeah, there's a bridge to get to get across. But yep. um, So he, yeah, so Sauron really does fulfill sort of the Satan, Serpent in the Garden role mm-hmm. here. Uh, he, tempts, he tempts the Numenorians with this <laughs> forbidden fruit, uh, this idea that paradise is within reach, that you've been withheld from it, that they're mm-hmm. hiding it from you so good um not because it's bad for you to get (laughs) right Uh, so it it really echoes that and i think that's what makes this section so interesting too is that we do have this kind of really strong mythic Mm -hmm. aspect like the symbolism is pretty straightforward here yeah Um, and because like the other reason uh, like sauron tells them right that they can they should go to valinor is like oh if you go there you'll be immortal yes right which Which is is so interesting because they've been told by other like at one point there was another king who really wanted to try to get to mm-hmm. Valinor and they sent an emissary who was like you're not yeah you can't do like that. <laughs> it's not gonna be going there isn't gonna right. isn't going there is not what makes us immortal mm-hmm. right. like you Iluvatar made you mortal for a reason you need to accept that <laughs> right don't ask questions just just do it. And it's interesting because after that point, too, they become much more interested in earthly things. Mm-hmm. That's when we see their obsession with like wealth mm-hmm. become a big part of the characteristic of the Numenorians. Um, and I don't I have to look at the time on that again exactly. But I think we switch from them kind of going to Middle Earth and like educating the men to going there to like exploit the wealth yes. of Middle Earth. Like there becomes this switch from you know, here's the gifts of wine and corn and culture mm-hmm. to bringing back these ships laden with, we're told goods. I think the implication is wealth, gold. Um, you know, they're building settlements there. There's like this colonizing thing yes. happening. Yes. Um, so yeah. Yeah. This does happen at the same time. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's okay. Yeah. Cause I'm trying to, cause this, this is kind of the lead up then to Sauron. And I think why he's able then to appeal to them because they've become mm-hmm. so obsessed with power and wealth Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, with the death, like we're told that like part of the reason they're going over to this to Middle Earth and taking the wealth is to adorn these memorials and tombs, mm-hmm. right, to their dead, yeah, um, as a way of kind of attaining immortality that way. Um, and it's actually interesting because in the Rings of Power on the Elves, we're told that their art also becomes a kind of form of embalming. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't have to go too far into that. But there's this way which kind of both these these um, are being paralleled as sort of this unnatural preservation. Yes, um, yes, it, yes. Tolkien does say basically. You'd think Aaron's joking, but he like basically says the new Minorians learn how to embalm bodies. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's quite literal. <laughs> um, so it's all about this kind of unnatural prolongation in any way possible. Um, and it also explains the appeal of Sauron because like mm-hmm. the appeal of the ring also is like this thing that stops decay, mm-hmm. right? That it preserves. It's unnatural and ultimately bad, but, right. but the right, appeal right, right. is that it stops things from changing mm-hmm. essentially. And the Numenorians, um, a big part of their sort of death obsession is this desire to halt mm-hmm. the passage of time. Whereas the elves, of course, are fading in a different... So there's like this interesting kind of contrast too between their experiences of time. But um, for the Numenorians, the big appeal Sauron brings them 
is that essentially if you go invade Valinor, you can stop the passage of mm-hmm. time. Like, you can become immortal, too. Right. Like every, like every schemer, he's the, oh, he's the one who has the solution. Only I. Only I can, can, t- can, can give you what you, you want. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, it's really interesting, because there's echoes of, like, pandemonium, too. In, mm-hmm. in Milton's Paradise Lost, when he talks about like we're gonna rise up and go invade <laughs> heaven, it's like okay, okay, I see what's going on here. Yeah, so it's very cool. I I appreciate that, and uh, a little surprised that a Catholic boy would turn to Milton. Yeah, Milton's myth, classic but... though. Yeah, yes. I mean, even Catholics believe in the uh, you know the fall. So yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not where uh, they're diverging from. You know, a good old Protestant. <laughs> good old protestant boy like milton um but oh gosh i was gonna say i think one of the interesting things to me about this section um you know you mentioned that sauron tempts them into going into the west and like trying to assault valinor and the valar freak out and there's like this big cataclysm in the world literally the world yeah. changes I think the thing that strikes me about this section is that there's a lot more Iluvatar here mm-hmm. than there is in the Silmarillion. So that world change is actually brought about because the Valar appeal to Iluvatar. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, I'm done. Yep. Re- like reshapes the world, right? That sound was the cracking, obviously, of Valinor off from the rest of... Uh, the 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 earth <laughs> we'll call it yeah just third mm-hmm. uh anywho uh, so like iluvatar is the one who does that right whereas at the end of the first age the valar are just like okay we're making this executive decision and we're going over and we're capturing morgoth and tossing mm-hmm. him into the void um and also you know the numenorians in the early ages of their kind of civilization they build this beautiful temple to Iluvatar which is the first real mm-hmm. sort of like quote unquote religious like space we see in this entire book and like kind of in the entire trilogy as well like we don't really have like temples to this god mm-hmm. of this earth right I just like I don't I don't know if you have any thoughts about this or like what you make of this, but like the kind of Iluvatar bleeding into this chapter. Yeah. It I d I don't think Tolkien was doing this, but to me it's almost it almost seems like the Valar are appointed over kind of the affairs of elves, whereas Iluvatar almost seems to be appointed over the affairs mm. of men. And I don't know if that's because when men die, they, I mean, they freak out because they don't know where they're going. But, like, I think to us, the reader, it's implied that, like, they go to Iluvatar or some sort of, you know, right. like, heavenly realm with him. Whereas the elves obviously just end up in Valinor with the Valar mm-hmm. for the rest of their existence. So, like, the Valar maybe have to be a little bit more interested in what happens in the, with the elves mm-hmm. because they're going to be stuck with them <laughs> as <a> roommates. <laughs> for god knows how long yeah um whereas iluvatar maybe has more of a hand in the fate of men because he's the one who's going to be stuck with them for god knows how long yeah 
I think, yeah, I think that's absolutely a big part of it. Um, the other thing I was thinking about too is that they have to ask his permission in this instance, whereas mm-hmm. with, you right. know, as you were saying with Morgoth, they could just sort of go yeah, and do they just it. And are I, like, great, cool. Yeah, I don't know if it's because he's technically one of their own that mm-hmm. they're able to act um, in that instance, whereas, yeah, with the men, they're a specific creation of Iluvatar. And I guess, did the Valor know the whole plan that Iluvatar has? Because if no. not, it would make sense why they have to ask, right? To say, can we intervene with no, these men who I are don't think storming the, across the ocean? I don't think the Valar know. Okay. Yeah, they kind so of talk about how, like, too. the thought of Iluvatar in regards to elves and men is, like, veiled from... That's, like, the one okay. thing they don't know about. I thought so, but I couldn't remember. Okay. So, yeah, that makes sense, then, why they have to ask his permission to, mm-hmm. to do these things. Uh, because they don't know what his his plan for the men is. <laughs> did did you want them so, to do this? Are we yeah, supposed to it, well, let this I mean, happen? Guess, like, yeah, I, Manway's it, just like picking up his like direct <laughs> line to Alubatar, like, hey, uh, there's a bunch of boats on our shore. Should we let them in? I mean, I, yeah. Maybe, like, are they wondering at first if that's part of the plan? I don't know. Yeah. Because they seem clueless. I mean, we've talked about this before. Yeah. They're kind of clueless about everything. For right. all sort of powerful beings. <laughs> Isn't it suggested that that's part of why Sauron's appeal also works is because the Valor have kind of absented themselves? Yes. From the world. Like, part of the reason he's able to sway them to invade is he's like, well, what have they done? Like, yeah. they, don't even, they don't even get involved. They're not yeah. even around. They don't care um, about you. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I think they have to to ask because, yeah, I, I, like, as funny as that image is, I think that's kind of what's happening. It's like, uh, awesome. is this part of the plan? Like,. <laughs> Um, these are yours right whereas (laughs) the valor understand morgoth right like they know Mm -hmm. what he and as you said they understand the elves too like they know what their sort of appointed place is so they they can step in in that instance because they know like what morgoth's doing is not part of Olivatar's plan whereas yeah when the men start doing weird stuff they're like uh (laughs) yeah it's interesting that like the men kind of remain so mysterious to both elves and the valor Mm mm-hmm and the second age, too, we're told is, like, when men kind of have a glow up. <laughs> they, they start really... reproducing like crazy because the elves are, yeah, are fading away. And the yeah. men are, as you met, because you mentioned earlier, right, like, elves don't have children that often. Mm-hmm. So there really is kind of this, like, demographic <laughs> shift that's also happening. Right. And the Valar are maybe not equipped to, uh, yeah. you know, govern over right. that that world. Mm-hmm. Because the rule, as you mentioned, the rules have changed, right? Mm-hmm. We talked about how sort of like the perspective of elves and men change how they indi- exist individually mm-hmm. in the world. But like there seems to be a way in which the growth of men as a group just changes how the world is supposed to function as a whole. Like the mm-hmm. elves don't really fit anymore. Like, and we'll talk about it with the fellowship because mm-hmm. that's where it becomes clearest. But like the elves are starting to not fit. Yeah. In this yeah. World. The second age really serves as, you know, really a bridge between obviously again we said middle child whatever it's like that second album um but it really is a bridge a bridge between the first and the third age and showing us yeah how this kind of dynamic is changing Mm -hmm. um here in the akalabeth we see sort of the rise of this great human civilization and then in the very beginning of that rings of power chapter um, we see kind of how the elves' rule is changing, mm-hmm. um, and maybe not so much fading at that point, but certainly starting to, yeah, fade. Right? They're not kind of movers, shakers anymore. They're more just mm-hmm. creators and like oracles. <laughs> yeah, and 
and they're kind of upset. There's this impression too that they're upset that their position in the food chain is changing because mm-hmm. <laughs> they're caught. Like if they go to Valinor, they're at the bottom mm-hmm. of sort of the chain of being that exists there, right? Like elves are at the base of it, and that, but if they stay here, like those who do stay, still occupy a position of prestige. We're told right mm-hmm. over like. Not just other wild elves, but like dwarves and men, and mm-hmm. like they're still kind of the masters of this place. So there's that interesting component too that like the elves who do stay um, seem to stay because there's prestige associated with it on mm-hmm. some level. Um, which I don't know how much that plays into the fading, but I think it explains the second age a little bit. In terms of like what's going on in a relationship between elves and men, right? Mm-hmm, like the men are dynamic. kind of doing their own thing. Yeah, but the elves are still still see themselves as top dog. Mm-hmm. Um, even though they're kind of gradually being pushed out. Right. In a lot of ways. You know, they're static. Well, the men are changing is the implication. Yeah. And then of course, like the cataclysm at the end of this is that the world changes to match. Right, the right, right, right. So then, yeah, the third age is really begins governed by mm-hmm. men more than right. elves. Though. I mean, it essentially begins with Isildur's decision not to destroy the ring. Right? Isn't that kind of the start of the third age? Or am I, I wrong? guess so. Yeah. So, like, yes. The, sorry, the second age is confusing because they're like two I battles, know, and yeah. one of them is really glossed over in yes. Calabeth. So, like, basically in like in the Akalbeth, there's this mention of like one one king of Numenor goes to help Gilgalad fight Sauron. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's kind of it. Yeah, we don't really <laughs> And that's why Sauron hates the Numenorians. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And then there's a second and so he has the ring at this point. He's got his precious ring, ring a dingy, and he <laughs> um and then there's a battle at the end, the very end of the Second Age, and that is when Isildur does not destroy the ring. And I always right. get confused because I think that the end of the Second Age is the downfall of Numenor, and it's not. I, I guess it isn't, right? I, that... Right, it's not. Okay. I e- even, be, though, yeah, sure. even though it seems like it is because it's another sort of, you know, mm-hmm. one of these wor- literal world-changing cataclysms that Tolkien... Right. Um yeah, so right, there's kind of this extended cataclysm because Isildur comes into Middle Earth. He's like the he and a band of Numenorians they mm, survive. Yeah, uh, because yep. they chose not to go. Right? Isn't that the? Yeah, basically, like there's this very it feels very Star Wars. There's like this <laughs> group of there's this group of rebels essentially that like don't listen to Sauron. They aren't interested in his preaching, teaching, you know, human sacrificing. That's um, right. They're still friends of the elves and like loyal to you know Valinor and the band etc um this is Isildur his brother and mm-hmm. his father um and they're like we can't go and they sort of just like um Isildur's grandfather tells his his dad oh mm-hmm. gosh, well, I can't remember his name uh, Elendil. Uh, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say Erendil because uh, he's <laughs> one. <Yeah>. Elendil. <laughs> so it's a soldier's father. His grandfather is like, I'm going to go to Valinor and be like, hey, there's some of us that are not so bad. Please 
FYI. <laughs> like, just <laughs> please leave us out of this. He's But before he leaves, he tells Elenda, like, pack up your ships yeah. with all the stuff you want to keep. Put your families, etc. on board and just, like, wait. Because he apparently senses that something really bad is yeah. going to happen. So that when this huge wave engulfs Numenor, they can, like, sail away. Mm-hmm. I mean, They're- not without loss, right? Their right. ships get totally, like, wrecked and... <laughs> It's not great, but they're kind of just like body surfing in their boats, like on this big wave to the Middle shore, Earth. Yeah. Um, not before Sildor saves a very special tree. That yes, the white tree. The white tree, right? We know this white tree, mm-hmm. so we do get some more croppings up of things mm-hmm. that appear. The Palantir are in this um, chapter. The Numenorians create right. the the seven Palantiri, um and they bring those with them to mm-hmm. the door so we get these kind of two big uh remnants of Numenorean mm-hmm. culture that do end up in the trilogy that are very important right we right. know the white tree right. of gondor right. and the and he founds the, gondor yeah right the, and the yeah. role that the the Palantir play um but yeah, so they do escape on like their basically long story short on their ships <laughs> because right. his grandfather had some sort of foresight that was like, get out. <laughs> yeah, he's like Tiresias. He somehow knows. Yeah. It's coming. <laughs> I don't um, know. Um, and you're right. So they're the, they and Sauron are the only survivors, essentially, because Sauron's immortal. Yeah, Sauron's immortal. And he goes so he back and he puts back. on his ring. This was crazy to me. He did not have his ring during this whole time. Wild, right? It is wild. Mm-hmm. Because when we, right, when you meet Sauron in the trilogy, like, he cannot be parted from his ring. No. So it shows you kind of how the ring grows in power mm-hmm. and really, you know, increases Sauron's power as well mm-hmm. um, in those kind of gap of years between right. when this happens and then when, like, Gilgalad and Isildur and Elendil, et cetera, fight. Right. Fight him right. at the end of the second age. I got right. it now. <laughs> yeah, which right, so that so so the the sort of transition to the third age, which Tolkien calls the age of men, is this failure of men mm-hmm. to do the right thing, essentially. Uh, mm-hmm. and and destroy the ring, right? He he takes it instead as sort of a prize. He's essentially repayment for in a lot of ways for the destruction. Like he sees it as a justified seizure in terms of all the destruction that Sauron has wrought. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in the letter, Tolkien calls it where guild uh, or that Isildur interprets it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but either way, it's because the, the power of the ring is so tempting as we'll talk about, I'm sure plenty soon. Um, but this sort of marks the beginning of the age of men, which is, you know, not a, not a very auspicious start to the age. Surely. No. So, um, in the final alliance of elves and men. That's right. So. Our big hero boy, Gilgalad, dies. Etc. A lot of people die. Yeah. A of, um, yeah, a lot of people die. <laughs> Elendil dies. Yeah. Yeah, Sildur's brother. Uh, that's his dad. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's Sildur's oh, brother, brother also, also dies. Yeah, his yeah, also, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So he's the, only, he's the only one left, yeah. Of yeah. The, yeah. Um. Yeah, of this line. And it is confusing because, like, you're like, okay, well, 
Aragorn is a descendant mm-hmm. of Isildur. And is, and you think, you kind of like reading the books, you're like, okay, so Isildur was this king. And he was, but not until he got to Middle-earth. Yep. They're kind of like self-appointed kings. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's like of the line of Elros, but basically like he would be like, you know, if Elros is like second or third child, had a child, and then that kind of is where he comes in. They do sort of appoint themselves kings in Middle-earth. They're just mm-hmm. like, all right, we were... <laughs> fancy people on our island you know yeah Mm -hmm. uh the seed he says the seed of a lentil a lot or a rendil a lot in this section which i just hate not a great yeah don't i don't love fellas don't use that don't ever talk about your seed Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or uh you'll be barfed on immediately (laughs) (laughs) oh man it's a pretty pukey phrase it's not great now yeah um Aaron, you talked a little bit about, like, wealth and power, and I'm wondering if you have uh, any more thoughts on that, because you always seem to have thoughts on, on wealth and power. And I noted, uh, again, this on 274 in my copy, probably very different in yours. Yeah. But um, this is maybe, like, a third of the way, a third mm-hmm. of the way through. Um, nonetheless, for long it seemed to the Numenorians that they prospered, and if they were not increased in happiness, yet they grew more strong, and their rich men even richer, for with the aid and counsel of Sauron, they multiplied their possessions, and they devised engines, and they built ever yep. greater ships. Do you have just, like, any thoughts on that <laughs> sentence, uh-huh. Aaron? <laughs> I mean, it's the rise of, uh, industry and finance capital, it sounds like to me. Making money with money. <laughs> I'm just poking a bear here. <laughs> That's all you want to say? I mean, what else could you say? Like, yeah, I mean, it's a, we talked about their obsession with with gaining wealth. Like, somehow wealth becomes a replacement for, I guess, spiritual. Because, like, spirit and culture seem linked. Like, mm-hmm. cultural attainment and spiritual attainment in Tolkien's universe seem linked, both yes. here and with the elves, right? Yeah. Like, it's a way of expressing something about mm-hmm. nature. Um, but the suggestion is that for the elves where it's like a way of expressing culture for the Numenorians, it's a way of preserving status mm-hmm. and preserving the self too, ultimately mm-hmm. with like sort of the tomb. So like there becomes this focus on material over the spiritual. Like there's a mention of like factories basically mm-hmm. being built. Uh, so it is this switch from kind of a cultural hub to a economic one and it's interesting because it's the most we've heard about like an economic system in all of this book mm-hmm. and then like oh, we will i think hear about <laughs> i mean i'm trying to think it's been a while since I read the trilogy but i don't remember anything this directly kind of like unless you talk about like isengard being sort of constru- yeah but that's like i mean like, that's it's like a specific f- conditional yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. isengard is like factory but not necessarily mm-hmm. economy right, right. like for an yeah. economy, you need sort of, right, yeah. you need the creation of goods, but you also need the exchange of goods for a right. service or what, you know, a payment, yeah. right? But Isengard is, like, just, like, creating, and there's no... Right, it's, uh, like, just, yeah, it's just right. making goods. Yeah, there's not a sense of, like, exchange. Whereas here, yeah, it's pretty deliberately constructed as sort of an economy being built. I mean, it, right. it feels very much like... Yeah, the rise of capitalism and colonialism. Right, rich rich men ever big right become ever richer. Yeah, I mean that's capitalism in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. Can um, you read that line again about the money? 
Uh, I can't find it in mine. Sorry. I'm sorry. Nonetheless, for long it seemed to the Numenorians that they prospered, and if they were not increased in happiness, yet they grew more strong, and their rich men ever richer. Mm. For with the aid and counsel of Sauron, they multiplied their possessions, and they devised engines, and they built ever greater ships. Yeah. So right, like they're starting to replace, they're starting to equate, right, like mm-hmm. an increase of personal wealth with happiness. Um, so like, right, they think they're happy because they're they have more stuff, rich. But mm-hmm. obviously, the same that same paragraph goes on to say, like they hunted the men of Middle Earth and took their goods and enslaved yep. them, and many they slew cruelly upon their altars. So Tolkien, I think, with this whole paragraph, is basically saying, like. Okay, yes, they are physically wealthy, but they're morally corrupt now. Yeah. Right? Like he's there's just certainly for him a connection between between the two, right? We mm-hmm. there's so much, you know, even today in our, our modern culture, right? There's you equate wealth with kind mm-hmm. of a moral uh, yeah, virtue. Yeah. Virtue. We've talked mm-hmm. about this <laughs> just between the two of us, <laughs> right? Where where wealth is is equated to moral virtue, and here Tolkien is clearly pushing against that, right? Mm-hmm. There is, and not even pushing against that. Basically, saying with with wealth comes corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yeah, and it, it was fascinating to me too is that there's a shift here from a pre sort of pre-modern world to what seems to be the closest to a modern world we get mm-hmm. in Tolkien, right? Like this is sort of the Spanish treasure fleets. This mm-hmm. is the new world. Like this is all about sort of the rise of capital and industry that begins with basically Columbus's voyage in 1492, mm-hmm. right? Like this feels very much like talking about the Spanish empire, the Portuguese empire, and later the British empire mm-hmm. as these sort of acquisitive monetary and materially driven societies. And like it, it, for me, I'm thinking what we talked about last time, which too is like Tolkien's regret over the lack of like a national story for mm-hmm. England. And like part of me wonders if he's he's kind of talking about how like in England anyway, the sort of national story has been replaced by empire, mm-hmm. which he, you know, which is not sort of fulfilling in the same way, like in the same way that the Numenorians think they're happy, but they're not like empire, he, you know, gives England status. But I wonder if Tolkien's saying something about that too. Like, yeah, it gives you power in the world, but it doesn't provide you with a sort of true i don't know national sense of self or identity mm-hmm. or culture well, or whatever it is right like it's just it's just acquisitive it's just taking things and right because things. you you know obviously a colonizer like i mean they would try to right take on other parts of the cultures that they colonize as right. parts of their own culture but for tolkien mm-hmm. that would be egregious because <laughs> Your culture is your culture, and like that yeah. doesn't change, right? He would hate appropriation. Mm-hmm. And that's why um, uh, the only good food in Britain is curry. That's, that's right. <laughs> they took. That's they took. Why yeah. they love to drink tea? Yeah, right. Um, because they just took from other cultures mm-hmm. and you know places around the world. Yeah, sugar, um, all those things, right? Like this breeds very much, right? Like an explanation, like a yeah, kind of a take right. on. Took, right, right. Took their goods. Uh, mm-hmm. And then enslaved them, which in this instance is really interesting because the Numenorians taught these other right. cultures how to actually have culture and then like took <laughs> right yep. the products of that culture. Um, so it's like, first we teach you, then we take from you, which, mm-hmm. you know, I would say 
colonialism just was first we take first we kill you then we take from you uh then we right. teach you <laughs> right I mean, right but... i mean gandhi was you know educated in english schools right like right yeah so yeah um, it's kind of a maybe not an exact exact analog but no 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 I, and i'm not saying it's i i yeah. certainly agree that this is definitely some sort of criticism of colonialism i just think in this interest in this instance mm-hmm. specifically mm-hmm. looking at the text it's interesting that like they brought culture yes. to Correct, these yeah. groups and then are essentially like taking back their own cultural production um because they're the ones who taught it to them in the first place mm-hmm. Unless, you know, somehow they've outpaced and now they, you know, now these men of Middle Earth are creating sort of their own cultural products that the Numenorians want, which is also interesting, right? That that they're unsatisfied with Mm -hmm. their own. Yeah, uh, I think it's a way of showing, right, that the value system in Numenor has changed mm -hmm. in a dramatic way from the creation of culture to the creation of things. Right. Of money, of objects, of temples. They're constructing temples, right? Um, right. Like artistry, you know, where they're not making things for cultural reasons. They're making things just to multiply things, mm-hmm. right? Um, to have them, mm-hmm. you know. The, which I think for Tolkien is the the other sign of sort of a decayed culture is this idea that like you can just stamp out a bunch of things and that mm-hmm. replace you know that makes up for a lack of culture it's, it's sort of like walter benjamin and his you know art in the age of mechanical reproduction this idea that like if you, you can make more things it what does it lose though like the prestige is gone right like mm-hmm. if i have a copy of the mona lisa that's a copy like it doesn't have any intrinsic value, cultural right. value right like it, you can look at it but it's not the you know the mona lisa right. or you know and then how does that devalue the actual cultural production? Correct. Right. right that initial. Right. Replicate. Yeah. If you can just replicate sort of pre-existing stuff, what does that do to the creation? Is you're saying of new, new culture. Right. We um, all value the Mona Lisa, but right. how much more would it be valued if it There's were one right, the only Mona <laughs> yeah. Lisa? Or I think like right. the... Um, michelangelo's pieta there's mm-hmm. like, there's mm-hmm. four right? right and so people value the pieta more than other uh mm-hmm. you know statues because you only have four like you know the original and then three reproductions of right. it um right. yep yeah. right so like the less reproduction or like you know there's uh i don't know if you know there's this is gonna, i'm gonna go way off but there's That's a fine. um there's a Da Vinci um, horse. Have you heard about this horse? It, I don't know. Okay, so Da Vinci. I have like a. I have a book about it. I'll lend it to. You. It's really interesting. Okay. He yeah. conceived of this huge statue of a horse um, to build for um, one of the city states, presumably uh, for Florence, for like the, oh, Flor- Okay. One of the rulers of Florence at the mm-hmm. time, um, and he or the Duke of Milan, maybe. Anyway. He, like, conceived of building this huge, giant horse. He had all these plants drawn up, and then they were destroyed during, like, a war between the city-states. Um, so he never got to create this horse. Well, years and years and years down the road, like, people had heard about this. They came across his plans, and actually an artist funded by the Meyer family, like, Meyer grocery stores. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> created the horse, like, using okay. Da Vinci's 
original plans and using like a a bronze casting system that he never would have been able i mean da vinci mm, was a right. genius but just he would have been so held back by the technology of the time right so they cast this humongous bronze horse sculpture based on the original like da vinci conception so it is a da vinci but it's not but it's the only one in the world it's in grand rapids michigan incredible at frederick Frederick meyer gardens it's beautiful Uh um but i think of it like that right that's the only one and it's not i mean it's not even a da vinci but in a way it is and like it does have this great value because it's it's the only one and they're never gonna build another one right right but it's also totally divorced from its place and time right in a really fascinating, like it's a yeah. Grand Rapids instead right. of so Florence or whatever. Uh, actually, no, there is one in Florence. There's one in Florence. There's one. Grand oh, Rapids. Okay. okay. Uh, the original, like the first casting, was in Florence, and then they did a second casting, and that's in okay. Grand Rapids. And those are the only two. So I, I miss. Yeah, okay. There are two, but still, like a weird, like yeah. it's a weird cultural phenomenon, right? Just, just mm-hmm. have like, right? Mm-hmm. Da Vinci conceived of this <laughs> during the Italian Renaissance, and then in like. 1995 they started casting it casting it interesting so there's something for you to think about for yeah. a long time Aaron. yeah and i don't know if that has anything to do with what we're talking about now, <laughs> but i think it does <laughs> i think it does too um <laughs> it's a really because, interesting story <laughs> yeah well i no, i think it does because what this whole section really is well not the whole section but a big part of the section is right the idea that what happens when cultural values are replaced by something else? Mm-hmm. And like the f- part of the fall of the Numenorians is that they're, they're too obsessed with these things that um, shouldn't really matter or matter quite so much. Right. Um, Death. Are, I mean, ultimately, yeah. right. That's Tolkien's big commentary is right. They're concerned with like worldly goods. They're mm-hmm. concerned with, you know, dominion over other um, men. Right. And ultimately, they're super concerned with death, which I think for Tolkien is like the number one, don't worry about it. (laughs) Right. And, you know, Sauron also essentially says there are no gods, right? Isn't Mm -hmm. that also part of his appeal? So, like, there is this way in which kind of this this obsession with the material is also paired with a denial of the spiritual in a way Mm -hmm. that I think Tolkien would find troubling upsetting mm-hmm. right that if if you focus too much on the material there becomes this opening to to deny sort of higher power higher truth higher whatever however you want to talk about it but like that's part of this as well which is interesting because you know like i said earlier there aren't a lot of gods in this Mm-mm. section right there's a temple to elude like you know like they are they're there but and yeah. i think we i think we talked about this really early on I don't remember if it was in his biography or in The Road to Middle Earth. Mm, mm-hmm. But like I remember reading about how there's not really like a godly presence in these works. Like there's not really a ton of worshiping. So they build this beautiful temple to Iluvatar um in Numenor, but like there's never really mentioned that anyone's worshiping at it. It's just sort of a right. hallowed place. And then they turn to, you know, kind of this worship of the dead and death. And um, really, they start worshiping Melkor. Uh, (laughs) And that's, but that's the only sort of, like, worshiping 
that we see. So it's interesting that Sauron is like, yeah, God is dead. You have Melkor now. <laughs> and then when, later like, him, right? I right. Mean, Sauron eventually becomes sort of the new god. God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when there doesn't seem to be a real godly presence to begin with. To me, mm -hmm. the reader, anyway. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I mean, Iluvatar is pretty kind of up in the sky. Yeah, I mean, he is really... Like, but he's ambiguous and like aloof and really separate from his creation. No one's praying yeah. to him. No one's worshiping in any significant ways. Um, they just build a big temple. That's sort of it. Yeah. Well, I think maybe we get a hint of maybe why. Maybe not why, but like the importance of Iluvatar's absence in this section. There's at one point where the the Numenorians are talking about essentially like we have to be we have to blind blind be blind faith essentially as to why oh, yes. all these things are happening, right? So there's this way in which I think Tolkien for Tolkien, which also fits with sort of Roman Catholicism, is the idea that God doesn't have to be visible. Like mm -hmm. you're just supposed to believe, right? And right. and I wonder if if that's kind of what's informing this large absence that we're we've seen through most of this. Um two, it's just the idea that you're just supposed to believe like you shouldn't have to <laughs> see evidence mm -hmm. although it still doesn't necessarily explain the absence of the ear describing of like worship like we just don't see right, that which is right. interesting that that's not a part of of what's happening here right because yeah i found what you're talking about he's the uh the numenorians answered why should we not envy the yeah. vow or even the least of the deathless for of us is required a blind trust and a hope without assurance knowing not what lies before us in a little <laughs> while and yet we also love the earth and would yeah. not lose it um, right, because you think, you know, okay, like, any religion really requires you to have a certain degree of faith. Uh, but right, you are also like, worshipping, you're fortifying your belief, right, through a system of worship. So you have mm -hmm. faith, but then, you know, you go to temple or mass or whatever sort of, like, system of worship you mm -hmm. use, right? And that fortifies that. Right for you whereas here it's like okay well they make a good point we have to have blind faith and just kind of hope that when we die there's something good at the end mm -hmm. um and there's nothing to really fortify that right nothing obvious right other than maybe when and maybe it's this i don't know i'd love to know your your thoughts like mm -hmm when the Numenorians are following kind of the prescribed path that Iluvatar has laid out is when they flourish and when mm -hmm. they, you know, fall away from that is when they fail. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, but they don't realize that, right? Like, right. They don't realize that as like, Oh, okay. We're having faith in Iluvatar. We're doing what we should be doing. Everything's going great. You know, that's not, uh, and I guess that goes back to like our, first discussion about this book where we talked about free will is like mm -hmm. that's just what mm -hmm. happens honey <laughs> yeah I, I guess two thoughts going off of that the first is like yeah i agree that the flourishing is sort of symbolic with like appropriate observance i guess of Iluvatar's place and i'm thinking of the idea right that sort of art becomes a way of also a way of worship of acknowledging mm -hmm. the divine 
you know, sort of like in the Renaissance and even before that, right? Like the creation of art as a way of acknowledging divinity. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked way back about, you know, icons in Eastern Orthodoxy and how they become not just an image of the divine, but the divine. So right. there's this way in which I think, yeah, looking at the elves and later the Numenorians and how they create cultural objects is maybe a way of understanding how worship works. Um, that sort of the creation of cultural items becomes a form of acknowledging divinity and worshiping the divine plan or however you want to think mm-hmm. about it. Right. Um, but like, uh, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No. Uh, in the, I mean, the other thing kind of related to this is just like, I was reminded when you were talking about how Tolkien's rejection of Arthurian legend as appropriate for Britain is because it's too tied to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that's partly also why we don't see worship is just because he, he wants to avoid kind of any suggestion that, you know, this is a myth that's grounded in, in Christian mm-hmm. thought, even though like elsewhere, it's pretty clear to him that it does fit within sort of the right. I mean, even timeline. just like even just like this blind faith idea, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, all this blind faith idea—the fact that we can directly connect it to Paradise Lost, which right. is which right. is Milton's retelling of a classic Christian myth. So, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. and he describes this as the second fall of mankind mm-hmm. rather than the first. He says the first still happens. So like the garden of Eden is still there somewhere. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't want to mention it because he doesn't want this to become a Christian myth in the way right. that, as he says, like Arth- the Arthurian legend is too closely. Right. It's very Christian. Right. In the same way that like saints lives are right. Mm-hmm. You know, the venerable Bede, for example, like he's, you know, identified with, with Christianity pretty strongly, things like that. So I, I don't know if maybe that's part of it, too. It's just Tolkien doesn't know how to kind of shape a, a worship space in this text in a way that wouldn't feel too Christianized mm-hmm. or wouldn't potentially lead to an interpretation that's Christianized. Right. Even. Um, but I do like the idea of, you were saying, too, that, like, the flourishing is a sign of sort of a <laughs> religiously healthy Right, like, that's blessed, society. right? That's sort yeah. of, like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're but on I the think, right path. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you said about how, like, you know, their cultural production is maybe like their like mm-hmm. sign of worship, and we I think we've talked about this before with the elves, right? Because they're kind of the ultimate like arbiter of of cultural art artistic production anyway mm-hmm. within this world, and how for Tolkien it's very specific types, right? Like so, like <laughs> it's a it's a weird fine line for him. Right, they can create certain artistic and even even useful objects, right? They don't all need to be like art objects that kind of fall in line with like, okay, this is a way that we quote worship. Mm-hmm. Uh but then right as soon as they start building right. the wrong type the wrong type of thing, the wrong type of ship or amassing wealth the wrong types of way, it like crosses a line for him where all of a Mm -hmm. sudden it's not right it's no longer about creating beauty or creating some sort of expression of who the Numenorians are it's just like it's mammon worship at this point Mm -hmm. you know the god has been replaced by a thing right because isn't the whole thing is like you know your your art is supposed to be a reflection of the divine within Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. and when it turns to something else it's a reflection of you right like it becomes much more um narcissistic it's not right yeah um because we talked about the sub creator idea way 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 back (laughs) we didn't Uh, talk about the sub creator in so long (laughs) (laughs) but i think that's 
what's informing this too, right? Is it's that desire to become your own sort of god master mm-hmm. that we're seeing here with the Numenorians, both in terms of their desire to sort of have longer life, but also just in what they're creating. Mm-hmm. Like wealth becomes a way of having power that is almost godlike mm-hmm. um, here. Right? I mean, it's part of their mastery over the other men that they come in contact with. Maybe it is a, maybe this is a myth, not only for England, but for the (laughs) modern world. I mean, it does seem to be a a take on what's called the long 20th century. Yes. Wealth and power. Yeah. The rise of, uh, the rise of all these mercantile states and colonialism. And yeah, it's interesting. Um, do you want to talk at all about the rings of power of the rings of power? Like anything else lingering there? Um, um, and we do not mean the TV show. <laughs> though I will say what we read today is kind of what the TV show is trying to cover. Unfortunately, they did not get any of these rights. So, mm-hmm. um, Yeah, it could have been really cool because this is one of the cooler, I think this is one of the cooler parts of kind of all of Tolkien's lore, even even the Lord of the Rings. Um, But unfortunately, the show only got uh, the rights to 17 pages in an appendix and they had to fabricate a lot. Mm -hmm. And couldn't infringe too much on what was happening in these books. Yeah, Same. it really shows. It's wild. But anyway, so when we say the rings of power, we do mean just this little section at the end of the Silmarillion <laughs> titled of the rings of power and the third age. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I see the value in reading these sections in particular before reading the trilogy. Like more I do the get Silmarillion. Yes. As a whole. Yeah. Yes. The Silmarillion for sure. Because um, I, again, sorry, sorry. sorry. No, it's okay. Could I get me? We have artifacts that show up. Right in the trilogy, we have imagery that I I always think there's like, uh, like Faramir talks about like Numenor. He has like a dream about like Numenor yep. being engulfed, and they talk about how he is like one of the kings of old uh, of Numenor. So like, I think our uh, Eowyn also has a dream of a wave engulfing. Right, it, like there's a lot of a lot of Numenor stuff that comes up in uh in the trilogy Aaron's laughing sorry sorry to all my English teachers ever I couldn't come up with a better word than stuff (laughs) stuff um but yeah there's a lot of a lot of Numenor lore that like bleeds into the trilogy more than what's going on in the Silmarillion and it helps explain Aragorn's reluctance to take the throne too Mm -hmm. a bit more Right, because we see what happened to all his forefathers, all this kind of mm-hmm. corruption and and greed, and mm-hmm. I do think that's really hard to understand when you're just reading them on your own, uh, yeah. or on their own, rather. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the only thing I was thinking about with Rings of Power that I think we might just want to hold off to the Fellowship about is... Um, the sort of, the thing we've been kind of talking a little bit about, which is the change from the elves to men, the mm-hmm. fading of the elves. Um, there's an interesting passage from the letter. I won't read it because I think it takes us a little too far afield, but I think it's something to revisit. Uh, just talking about sort of the relationship between elves and art 
and elves and like the laws of nature and laws of time. Um, and that might be something for us to kind of put a pin in and and wait on for fellowship. Are you sure? We don't have to. <laughs> I'm worried it'll take us too far afield, but um, I mean, I can read it if you want. I think it's fine. I mean, okay. I don't know. We don't. T- we aren't going to meet elves until quite a ways. I mean, True. there's some. We do get some elves at the beginning of the trilogy, but like, I think let's explore it now, okay. and, and we can always we can always cut it if we need to. Wow, I have permission from Iluvatar. <laughs> to to cut this section he spoke through me (laughs) um so this letter is from tolkien to stanley unwin um in 1950 or 51 basically talking about why all these things need to be put together so it's really long it's really fascinating but it's it's tolkien talking about the whole sort of relationship between the silmarillion the hobbit and the trilogy and these two sections as well um, but of the Rings of Power, he says, quote, we see a sort of second fall, or at least error, of the elves. There is nothing wrong, essentially, in their lingering against counsel in the lands of their old heroic deeds. So he's talking about the ones who stay behind, who elect mm-hmm. to remain. He continues, but they wanted to have their cake without eating it. They wanted the peace and bliss and perfect memory of the West, and yet to remain on the ordinary earth, where their prestige is the highest people above wild elves, dwarves, and men, was greater than at the bottom of the hierarchy of the Valinor. They thus became obsessed with fading, the mode in which the changes of time, and in parentheses, the law of the world under the sun, was perceived by them. They became sad, and their art, shall we say, antiquarian, and their efforts really a kind of embalming. Um, So this is his summation of what we're seeing in the rings of power, essentially, in addition to sort of Sauron's forging of the rings, which there's also some interesting stuff in the letter about that. But um, maybe for what we're talking about today, this is the part that stood out to me. And I think for some of the reasons we were just talking about with art mm-hmm. um, in the way it becomes a method of preservation. So there's an interesting way in which sort of the elves become guilty of something similar to what the Numenorians become guilty of, which mm-hmm. is, uh, whereas the Numenorians sort of falsely value things as art, mm-hmm. The elves falsely create art that values the wrong thing, mm-hmm. I think, is the right that the elves, by kind of unnaturally kind of prolonging, trying to prolong, I guess, their cultural dominance rather than their lives, it becomes a similar kind of falsification. Um, it's interesting, he says they became sad and their art antiquarian, like they, they don't longer, like they're out of time, like they don't fit, anymore. right? Exactly. Um, so even though they're creating things that they perceive, because their time, he talks about like, you know, they're they're perceiving the passage of time, right? And they're mm-hmm. trying to reflect it in their art, but their art either isn't catching that mm-hmm. change or can't because they are so unwilling to kind of engage with it, I guess. I don't know. It's very interesting to me. What page what, is this on? Uh, so it's on 151. Okay. I think kind of towards the middle of the page, if I'm remembering right. I'm looking at my notes, so I... Don't know exactly where it is on here. I found it. Um, Oh yeah, sorry. It's It's actually the bottom bottom paragraph. Yeah, Um, and it's basically I basically read most of it. He finishes with uh, basically discussing where the elves are geographically, Mm -hmm. Um, and then it segues into the creation of the ring. So I think the implication too is that like this sort of obsession creates an opening for Sauron, right? Mm-hmm. To sort of say, here's a ring that'll keep all this stuff from changing. Yes, yes, for sure. 
Um, right, Sauron, we, we know he plays on weakness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, I, I think this is interesting, especially in, like, relation to Galadriel, because we know from the, um, Silmarillion that, like, she wants power, right? There's, like, it's basically stated she wants some sort of power, and I think this paragraph nicely lays out why she decided to stay, Right, because she was hoping that if she did, she would be... I mean, she is basically the most powerful of the elves, because she's the only elf now remaining in Middle-earth who's ever been in um, Amon and Valinor. So, but again, it's like that dissatisfaction, right? She is powerful, but because they can't have this, like, perfect memory of the west as tolkien says like they're not ever going to be happy right they can't ever create heaven on earth is is the problem right um right and i think i think the 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 antiquarian art is interesting Mm -hmm. because like through throughout the trilogy it seems like right that which the elves create is highly valued so it's interesting to me that Tolkien makes a comment here about it seeming out of like out of time and out of place. And I'm wondering now, like, is it valued because it's like like why then? <laughs> right? Like why are right. I don't know. Well, is this uh, yeah, I couldn't tell if the suggestion was like those things that are valued are just older. Right. Like are and, they like, valued the new stuff because isn't... Right, are they valued yeah. as we would value like something that's antique, whereas like, oh, this mm. is nice to look at, but I'm never going to use it? Because that doesn't seem like Tolkien, right? He likes oh things god. that are nice yeah. to look at, but not useful. Oh my god, yeah, it's like a, it's like those, you have middle class people in the Victorian era had like a bunch of like Japanese screen prints in their house and stuff. Like, is that what, is that what the elves are, is right. now? Like, what is... Uh, like, I know. just think that's what I'm getting stuck on. Mm-hmm. Um... Or is it that like the ideas from which the art sprang are now that. antiquarian? I think it's that. It's not so much that the product yeah. itself is like, oh, that's so old. Well, it is, and it's not recognized. You know, like you know what I mean. Like it is, but it's not recognized that way or something. Yeah, yeah I think it is the ideas that are. So, the like, thing they... that's inspiring the art is, yeah. Right. So the art can yeah. never fully be like appreciated by any like now living being mm-hmm. in middle earth because the thought behind it is not something that they can grasp yeah or it doesn't accurately reflect the time in which it was created mm-hmm. well right and because if they're so. trying to create in order to make you know the kind of new flourishing of a west in middle earth Anyone right. who hasn't been there or experienced that is never actually going to appreciate it for what it is because they've never seen the real thing, right? They're never right. going to be like, wow, this is a true reflection of mm-hmm. Valinor <laughs> right. here. It's, yeah, it doesn't give you access to that mm-hmm. particular moment in time. We talked we talked about this a couple times, right? But the idea that like an art object contains within it the moment of its, mm-hmm. the whole moment of its creation. Right. So right, it's, that it's sort of a self-contained universe, mm-hmm. at least conceptually, right? You can look at, yeah, you know, I can look at Starry Night 
and be transported in theory to Van Gogh's time, whether or not you want to actually <laughs> say that that's true or not. I think that's what, what the issue is here, right? Is that the art no longer has that trans, mm-hmm. it can no longer transport the person to a particular moment because that moment, because what they were trying to create in that moment reflected another dis- more distant moment. So like mm-hmm. we're too removed from the thing to actually right get back at the, the value that it's trying to represent, but mm-hmm. can't because that value is already too far in the past. Right. <laughs> Sorry if this is like turning into Doctor Who, but I'm trying to figure out like, because there's something like, going on with like the relationship mm, between art, artist, and viewer. It's like a reflection of a reflection of yeah. a reflection, I suppose. Of a reflection of right, a reflection. reflection. <laughs> like that uh, uh, Arcade Fire song. Yeah. Um, right like that i think that's the simplest way to put it is their art is no longer just like a reflection of right for tolkien this kind of divine moving through them it's a reflection of of a of a time in which these things were created and then they're trying to create yeah it's it's really hard to explain but i think reflection of reflection and so on is perhaps the best way to, right. to describe it in order to then preserve right mm-hmm. it would be like if 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 i i don't know if i experience something and then experience a, a moment in time or a piece of art etc and then i try to recreate recreate something of my own that reflects how i felt mm-hmm. experiencing that but you've never experienced that my Art object is not ever going to actually help you access that initial Correct. kind of moment of the sublime. Ah, yeah, I've been wanting to talk exactly. about the sublime, right? <laughs> my my creation is never going to help you Correct. experience my subliminal moment when I actually access the thing that I'm trying to reflect right. in my art. So my art simply preserves that moment for, you know, posterity, whether that's myself or Mm-hmm. A, a whole mm-hmm. other group of people, mm-hmm. which is kind of what the elves are doing. Correct. Is yeah. that what we're trying to get at? Yeah, I mean, yeah, because <laughs> right, I'm saying it's like okay, so it's the difference between buying a mid-century style desk on Joybird and owning an actual mid-century style desk. Right. <laughs> All right. Like it's because it's it's a replication of something that inherently can't fully replicate the moment of its creation. Right. I mean, you could kind of do this with anything. Yeah. Any kind of recreation, but I think absolutely, like it's just this there's something that remains inaccessible because the thing itself did not appear in the time that it's supposed to represent mm-hmm. or in the, in the culture that's supposed to represent or the moment it's supposed to represent, like something is lost in that translation. Right. It's inauthentic. Um, yeah. Right. There's not an authenticity. So it almost is a reflection rather than an embodiment. Maybe that's the way to think about it. Right. It's a reflection, as you said, of a reflection, whereas the original thing itself is actually the thing itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It doesn't have to reflect anything because it it is that right. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah, whereas this art that's an, is antiquarian because it's it has to reflect, and in that reflection, it's imperfect, right? In the mm-hmm. way that if you look at a mirror, that's not how you actually look because right. it's flipped, <laughs> right? Um, so there's this way in which yeah, I think it's never can capture what it's trying to capture, as mm-hmm. you're saying. Like it just can't. Right, and so it's never going to make anyone looking at it feel the same way right right like like i like the i like the example of like a like a mid-century desk right if you were just like this is my desk and i'd be like great that's a beautiful desk 
Uh, but if you're like, this is a, this is from, you know, 1955, whenever. In Denmark, yeah. <laughs> you know, I would be like, that's very cool. How did you get it? I, you know, it right. sparks curiosity and and wanting to be enlightened more about uh-huh. something. Um, whereas like a recreation or taking something, uh-huh. right, like you said, out of its t- or creating something out of its time and place it just kind of is like a full stop like oh that's nice mm-hmm. what's it based on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> right you're not right you don't have that same sort of feeling of of like interest and uh curiosity about an object that you know is not uh, an authentic right it, it doesn't have any authenticity beyond itself right. or i have a, i have a recreation of a matisse hanging in my bathroom mm. i don't expect anyone to ask me <laughs> questions about it because everyone knows i do not own matisse's right. blue nude <laughs> and if i did she wouldn't be hanging in my bathroom <laughs> right right yeah and i i guess the example of the desk helps me understand the question you had too about like well what is valued mm-hmm. by the time of the trilogy in terms of elvin culture production i think it's what you're saying right is like because it reflects something of the original it still has an appeal right but it is not as you said still as appealing as an original would be right that makes sense i don't know it can still be very beautiful right yeah you can still appreciate it for that the matisse is still a beautiful work of art whether it's a recreation or whether it's the original but i'm never going to be in awe of a recreation Mm -hmm. in the same way i'm going to it's why we go to an art museum exactly right it's why you would go to the art museum to see starry night or like Mm -hmm. the dance at bougival and be like wow this is you know i love this renoir it's gorgeous in Mm -hmm. person and when you see it a recreation you're gonna be like great this is beautiful but you're not gonna stand in front of it you know i think yeah. of that that scene in ferris bueller's day off where cameron is uh right in, in front of the oh gosh the sunday in the park <laughs> like and and he's just like enraptured by he's yeah. having his moment of the sublime yeah. right he's having yeah. this this weird kind of uh, philosophical engagement with with a with an mm-hmm. uh, an art object and and you're not going to ever get that no. uh, looking at something that was not an original which mm-hmm. is not to say with the right the elves are creating originals but they're <sighs> they're not products of the west i guess right. and that's kind of the they're still replicating right that's the end all be all right i mean the silmarils really anything created at the beginning of the first stage in the light of the trees uh and then kind of ending with the silmarils as this sort of ultimate object Mm -hmm. of art is never going to be or anything that's not created within that time period is never going to quite be as good as anything that was created yeah even the best Recreation is still a recreation. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I'm glad we had that conversation. Yeah, me too. So, thanks for twisting my arm. Didn't take that much twisting. No, it didn't. But maybe that's where we should end. I think that's a really good place to end. Okay. Um, So, we're done. We can close. We have cover to cover read the Silmarillion, we can close it. Well, I don't know. I didn't read all the like definitions and names, so I guess I can't say I've read it cover to cover. But Get back to work. Uh, I've read the narrative cover to cover, so I can close the book and say that I have now read the Silmarillion a third time. What a freaking freaky accomplishment. 
And I don't mean freaky in like a cool way. Rick James way, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, and Aaron, you can say you've read it in full. One time. Now. Once. Yeah. Um, and what did you think? <laughs> what did you think? Uh, final assessment. Final assessment. Uh, overall, I'm glad I read it. Uh, there Very are parts diplomatic. that I really enjoyed. There are parts I really enjoyed, including this last section. Um, some of it I could have done without. And I, I think my appreciation of the trilogy would remain the same. But uh, yeah, I think if, if you're a big enough fan, it's worth reading. I would never just give this to someone. No. As no, a no, way no. into Tolkien. Never. <laughs> but uh, you give them the think... Hobbit as a way into Tolkien. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, but overall, I, I think it was worth. I don't know if I, yeah, I don't know if I enjoyed it, but it was worth it. If that makes sense. It does make sense, because that's about how I feel as well. <laughs> okay. Uh, for any anyone who did read along with us, we hope that you at least have that same feeling, if not better. Uh, if you did read along with us, what an incredible accomplishment. Truly, this is not an easy book to read. If you did not read along with us, we do not blame you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, without blame. But please um, get ready for the trilogy. Um, we're very excited. That'd be good. We, uh, yeah, we can't wait. I think if yeah. uh, today's discussion showed us anything, I think it showed us that our conversations around the trilogy will be maybe even more fruitful than those we had during uh, our reading of the Silmarillion. So, yeah, it's the hope. <laughs> we can only anyway, live in hope. That's right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's right. Uh, Anyway, as always, thank you for listening. Mm -hmm. We will be back soon with a new episode. Mm -hmm. Be well. Uh, be healthy. Be happy as you can. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See you in the Shire. <laughs>